Welcome to episode 41 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is Meg Shields, a film writer out in the Gulf Islands of British Columbia. Her fine work appears in Film School Rejects. Meg was part of one of my very favorite episodes of the show, our recent Patreon episode on folks. But today, Meg joins me and me alone to discuss one of her very favorite films, John Boorman's 1981 sword and sorcery epic, Excalibur. Meg, welcome to Junk Filter. Uh, how do you do? Ready to talk about the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> how did you find out about Excalibur, Meg? Uh, I have an extremely groovy mom who, like, loves Ken Russell and, like, weird 70s stuff. Like, like the kind of person who's like, I need my kids to see a boy and his dog. Or, like, I need yeah. my kids to see Silent Running. So, like, she was... Uh, I-, I asked her, because, like, as an adult... I watch Excalibur and I'm like remembering how young I was when I first watched it. And uh, I like interrogate, interrogate her multiple times whenever I, I do rewatch it to be like, what the hell were you thinking? And her rationale is that, and I kind of respect it. It's that all other adaptations aren't as good <laughs> mm-hmm. or like, or dumb it down or pull punches. And that this felt like the most honest version of this legend and that that's what she thought we deserved um which is still very silly and funny to me but yeah so uh my mom is responsible she's responsible for a lot of things and one of them is my absolute undying love of excalibur but funnily enough so i have two younger sisters they hate this movie so so, so, so there's a one out of three chance that <laughs> that excalibur will work <laughs> I saw it when I was a kid on pay TV because it was on a lot. Oh, hell yeah. It was on a lot in the hell 80s. Hell yeah. Did they censor it? No, no. It was it was completely okay, uncensored. Good. Fuck yeah. My childhood was uh, a glorious childhood in the sense that I saw lots of age-inappropriate material. Yeah, see, the trick is to get raised by someone that like forgets that censorship exists. Because Excalibur is very sleazy. Sure is, but but with reason, you know, like everything that happens is either based in some form of mythology, be it the actual Arthurian legend or, you know, the myth, like the mythos around it, like everything has its purpose in Excalibur, no matter how outlandish, extravagant or over the top. Like, I do believe every part of this film deserves to be in it, even the goofy shit. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, like, I will defend all of it. Um, Yeah. Come at me. I've picked so many fights in my time where I'll just go up to like someone and be like, have you seen Excalibur? Like, do you like it? And if they say no, I'll just fight them. <laughs> like, I, I will go to bat for this movie till my dying day. I love it. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and the despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold the sword of power, Excalibur. It's not for kids. I don't know what you're talking about. What do they say? Leave the leave the kids at home for this one. No, no, no. I d- don't listen to Jesse. Absolutely, bring your kids in into the living room, lock the door, and make them watch Excalibur. <laughs> That's my advice, professional. Don't edit this out, Jesse. <laughs> I won't. 
I guess we should get this part out of the way early on because, you know, it. this movie is Zack Snyder's favorite film. That's fine. I mean, like some people like, so here's the thing. Um, you, uh, we were talking about this before we hit record. You are the first person to ask me to talk about Excalibur literally every other time in my life. When I've talked about it, it's been, uh, me yelling at strangers, new acquaintances, uh, and at networking events <laughs> about Excalibur and white rules and, uh, trying to come up with as many excuses as I can to talk and write about it. Um, my friends are very lucky and got a wonderful double bill from me back in the day of Legend and Excalibur. And I remind them frequently that they're extremely lucky. <laughs> um, when I start yelling about at Excalibur about them, uh, wait, about Excalibur at them, uh, they'll kind of, you know, lean in and be like, you know, that's Zack Snyder's favorite movie. And I'm like, that's a point in his favor. That means the man has taste. <laughs> like, like that's a good thing. And it's also it makes most of his work more interesting to watch it as someone uh, who appreciates that film. That's like my in to like maybe watching Zack Snyder stuff. So, uh, if anyone wants to bring that up as a negative in uh, Excalibur's court, uh, tut tut, not going to work. I could see right off the bat when I watched this movie again for the first time in a while that. Zack Snyder has gotten a lot out of this movie, but I also think that Christopher Nolan has too. Sure. I mean, and the other thing is like, uh, those boys have transformed the parts they got out of that movie in such a way that they're not recognizable except for people who know these little factoids. Like no one has done anything close to Excalibur before or since. Like even the sword and sorcery films that followed from Excalibur don't really touch it in terms of what it does. So, uh, imitation, sincerest form of flattery. And, uh, I, I wish more people would look to Excalibur as an example of great filmmaking. Um, yeah. So bring it on more. And if it, you know what, a, a, a Nolan fanboy in Excalibur's pocket is a win for me. So <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> One thing that distinguishes Excalibur from its many, imitators and influenced filmmakers is this movie's very horny. Yeah, I mean I mean most sword and sorcery films are pretty horny. Um uh it, it, like Lady Hawk, it's a horny movie. Dragon Slayer, it's a horny movie. Uh Willow, arguably also a horny movie. It's it's just that um I think that John Borman has a better way of expressing horniness. And and I also think it also, you know, uh to get it to, to whatever clamber back onto the higher ground. I think that given the kind of macro themes of, you know, um, degeneracy, sin, birth and rebirth, like the, the sexual charged energy in this film does make sense. Like it's not unwarranted. Um, and also this film was made in 1981. Like everyone was, was <laughs> wild and out. <laughs> it's great to see. <laughs> I do believe this movie was rated PG though. Yeah, great. Perfect. I agree. I don't your, think it was rated R. Oh, yeah. So Maybe. your parent, your parent guides you and, and the parent goes, you should watch Excalibur. And then that's it. <laughs> I'm going to look again because maybe it was rated R and I'm just dreaming. No, no, no. This is good. We're going to retcon it in our heads. Excalibur <laughs> was rated G. <laughs> I, think, I think I did hear that somewhere. <laughs> the two big references to Excalibur in Snyder movies that I detected was uh, on the night that Thomas and Martha Wayne got shot in the nearby alleyway. 
in Batman v Superman, they were coming out of a screening of Excalibur. Well, so this begs the question, right? What, what, because, you know, the, whatever, the Batman, I can't believe we're talking about this, by the way. I can't believe you've done this to me. We're just getting it I, out of the way. Okay, okay, that's fine. Um, like, uh, uh, so what scene did young Bruce Wayne, <laughs> did he, did, was scandalized him such that he forced his parents to leave early? Like, this, this begs a lot of questions. Like, was, which, which rape scene was it? Uh, or was it, um, uh, did he like hate iridescent green light? Like what could it, there's, there's a lot of caves in this movie. Maybe he hates that. So I don't know. Honestly, if I ever get Zack Snyder in a room, that's going to be my one and only question is going to be what scene did, uh, did the Waynes walk out of in Excalibur? Maybe that's what he should have done. It should, his big retcon there should have been that the, uh, Bruce doesn't get scared and leave. They finish Excalibur and leave. I realize now that Bruce Wayne's parents were a lot like my parents, that they took their kids to see age-inappropriate movies. I guess you're Batman, Jesse. That's our big <laughs> takeaway from our, our chat on Excalibur. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that I'm, in fact, Batman. Yeah, it turns out. And I'm the potty mouth Batman that I always feared was within right. me. But the other big Excalibur reference is when Superman uh, is mortally wounded in Batman v Superman, he gets stabbed by a staff and then pulls himself along the staff to kill the the villain in Batman yes, v Superman. Yes, which of course so, is how uh, Arthur gets Mordred at the end of Excalibur. Yeah, that was such a good uh, epic death. And that's lifted right from a painting, isn't it? That image? Uh uh, it might be. Uh, I know that uh, it's a very tableau moment. Like, it's very painterly. I don't know if it's actually based off a painting, but uh, I sure believe it. Excalibur is the third part of this incredibly bonkers trilogy that John Borman made right off the heels of Deliverance, which was a huge, huge hit. And Borman could write his own ticket. He was obsessed with making a movie about the legend of King Arthur for since the 60s. And he spent a lot of time in the 70s working on an adaptation of Lord of the Rings when it was owned by United Artists. His version of the movie was too expensive for UA, and they wound up paying Borman about $3 million to buy out his screenplay, which they wound up, uh, I don't think they used it at all, but then they made the animated version of the first half of the books made by Ralph Bakshi, which... Meg, I saw in a theater as a kid. Oh, so lucky. We love Bakshi. Have you heard how Bakshi yeah. speaks? Sorry, this no, is totally no. unrelated. Uh, uh, dear listener and dear Jesse, after you finish listening to this, please do yourself a favor and listen to how Ralph Bakshi talks. He's so <laughs> delightful. He has the most adorable voice. <laughs> when the project for... Um, Lord of the Rings kind of fell through in the mid-70s. Borman still wanted to make a science fiction fantasy movie, so he made the immortal Zardoz for yeah, 20th Century uh, Fox. Which is also a great movie. Do not yeah. believe do not believe what you have heard. Zardoz good. Oh no. I love Zardoz. Another very horny movie. <laughs> An incredibly <laughs> that, horny movie. Yeah. A movie that uh, I guess uh, Borman was trying to make some weird point in the movie of this sort of matriarchy that was running sure the was. planet in a post post-apocalyptic universe. Yep. <laughs> and? <laughs> no, I have nothing to add. Okay. But what rocks about Zardoz is that almost everything There's is There's a lot of rocks in Zardoz, Jesse. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of uh, almost everything that we see in Zardoz is in camera work, right? Like there's no um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, visual effects. It's all there. 
Well, sure. Yeah. And um, I mean, arguably the same can be said about Excalibur. Like there are optical effects, but they also used, and I wish I could, re- I should know the name for this type of effect. It's, it's basically where you're bouncing uh, the reflection of a miniature into the lens of the camera. So it, it yes. is there and present and you're just capturing it on film, but they, most of the times were uh like Camelot is on screen. That's what, that's what's happening there. It's the same for the giant red sun. It's just a reflection being beamed into the camera. And, um, as much as Excalibur like had a budget, it was made on a pretty, you know, shoestring situation. And a lot of the, um, things that are quite astounding are, you know, simple, practical sleight of hand. And like, you can even see that from Zardoz. Like he has a really good grasp on how to do cheap, but effective practical effects. Mm-hmm. And some that you don't even notice. Like I was watching it. Um, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I was last year when I rewatched it, I hadn't noticed before that when Percival brings the um, the Holy Grail to Arthur, it fills up with wine as he's holding it in a one in a oneer. Like he yeah. has it, walks over, and then it fills up all within a oneer. And they just did that with a tube, a tube wow. pumping wine. And like I'd never noticed that before, but. Just little things like that that really sell the world and make it feel physical and tangible. I was reading some very funny reviews of Zardoz when it came out. Um, the word of mouth really spread around this movie that it wasn't worth watching. And I oh. read this funny story that said that moviegoers reported that, quote, when dissatisfied patrons from the previous showing exited the lobby, they would encourage those in line to leave. <laughs> and many times they did. <laughs> See, that would encourage me to move like, like, I know <laughs> that's a, that's a green light baby. Zardoz is not really supposed to make sense. No, of course not. <laughs> it's supposed to feel insane. I mean, that's yep. what you're get. That's what it's all about. So, okay, so that was strike one for Borman. He made Zardoz. Not, not so artistically is, uh, a strike yeah, one. Yeah, I was, was going to say, like, these are, these are in our, on our uh, uh, chalk, what do you call it, chalkboard, these are strikes in the positive. But in yeah. Hollywood's eyes, these are negative strikes. So Borman had originally been asked to direct the first Exorcist movie, but he considered it, quote, rather repulsive. He was interested in doing Exorcist 2, and the quote from Borman was, the idea of making a metaphysical thriller greatly appealed to my psyche. He liked the fact that Exorcist 1 did all the heavy lifting in terms of setting up the story. And so all Borman had to do was keep going. And it is a tr- it's a famous bomb. Like it got yeah, terrible like, reviews. Yes. It got no it made no money, especially compared to the original Exorcist. Everyone hated it. I kind of like it though. Oh no, it's good. I mean, Exorcist 2 and Exorcist 3 are fantastic movies. Yes. <laughs> uh, and like Zardoz, don't deserve their reputation at all. Like they're yeah. they're uh, solid bangers in their own right, irrespective of Friedkin's film, in my opinion. But Heretic like almost ruined Borman's career. I read this annoying uh, quote from William Friedkin because William Friedkin's been dining out on the fact that Exorcist 2 was a huge bomb well, for look, years. Well, uh, look, William Friedkin, he's made a career out of dining out. This is a man full of anecdotes. Like, this is <laughs> part of his shtick. It's, it's okay. All, all's fair in love in, uh, love and Friedkin anecdotes, in my opinion. But I, I don't like to see my two dads fighting, I have to say. No. So Friedkin, this is a quote from Friedkin. He said, it was horrible. It's just a stupid <laughs> mess. 
Sorry. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy, John Borman by name, somebody who should be nameless, but in this case, should be named. Oh, come Scurlet, on. A horrible picture. Then later he said that it diminished the value of the original and he called it, quote, the worst piece of crap I've ever seen and, quote, a freaking disgrace. Maybe he said fucking. He later added, that film was made by a demented mind. I mean, the thing is, not not wrong. But, no. but also freaking, you made Jade. Like, yeah. get off your fucking high horse, my dude. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, he was just gloating because he didn't. He and William Peter Blatty didn't want to do it. It's a good story, and I think that that that's the uh, what motivates most of Freakin. What comes out of Freakin's mouth is is the storytelling of of the history there. Yeah. Um, but he was also parroting back what the you know the uh, popular opinion about Heretic was. Oh yeah, for sure, and and wanting to distance himself. Yeah, and it's kind of nice when your successor fails, <laughs> like, like, or whatever, quote unquote, fails. But no, 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 d- d- don't let, don't let, uh, you know, uh, Hurricane Billy dissuade you, listeners. You should go watch Heretic. Yeah, no, it's good, and it's got that boss Ennio Morricone score. True. Like that brings true, it true. up a couple of points too. And Richard Burton, he says uh, at one point, Louise Fletcher asks him, "What are we up against, Father?" And he says, "Evil." Yeah. Exactly. How can that? It, Burton is just like perfect casting to be in this train wreck. Yeah. But it, it, but it's a train wreck that is always visually interesting and, and involving. Like I was, Look, I was aboard. You say train wreck. I say uh, actual interesting original movie making. Yeah, no, no, I like it. I, I'm using train wreck in a positive way. I, I meant, I meant the greater you. Like, like yeah. sometimes you see people, uh, you know, uh, dummies talk about Excalibur and say this is a mess, and I go, mm? or is it just like doing a different, you know, uh, in, engaging in a different type of storytelling? Yeah, I read some reviews at the time of Excalibur, and they were like, oh, it's splendid visual filmmaking, but it's a yeah. mess. The dialogue is so terrible. It's like, are you kidding? The dialogue yeah. rocks. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, we all need to get our hearing and our eyesight tested every now and then. So Excalibur was made easier for Borman to make with the success of Star Wars and studios now wanting to use the sort of, you know, um, epic fantasy works that had existed for a long time and turning them into films. So all of a sudden it became a little bit easier for Borman, even after having made Exorcist 2, to get Excalibur off the ground. Thank God. Thank it Pazuzu. Who do I thank? <laughs> you got to thank you got to thank Zardoz and Pazuzu. My only two deities. <laughs> so this is a 2 hour and 20 minute adaptation of the legend of King Arthur. All the hits. It's got the Sword and the Stone, it's got the Rise and Fall of Camelot, it's got the Quest for the Holy Grail. Like what more do you need from a King Arthur movie? But my first question about this movie for you is why do they keep trying to make King Arthur movies? Like it's been done and it will never be done better. Well, it's, it's one of those like primedial stories, right? Where it's, it's very pro- protean in the sense that most Western myths owe something in structure, form, or theme to Excalibur because it's essentially uh, like the, the Arthurian legend is, and I, I'm, I hope I can um, say this as lucidly as possible without sounding insane, uh, I always think about that joke that John Carpenter has that 
there's no way to talk about who's the thing and the thing without sounding really high. And I feel like <laughs> I feel that way about trying to talk about uh, this film. But what makes Excalibur such a successful iteration of the Arthurian myth is that it really taps into this macro ebb and flow that gives the Arthurian myth the power that makes it a story worth saying over and over again to you know greater and lesser degrees um which is this kind of you know uh central three-part myth um of humanity's transition from a brutal magic-based past to civilization so we kind of begin with uther and his monstrous armor where everything is in a swamp and uh we have the birth of you know the prodigal son and we move out of that mud and that mire and that kind of, you know, more pagan leaning situation to Camelot, which is, you know, gilded and excessive. And we have this kind of armchair king uh, where civilization is coming about, but uh, there's a central sin that eventually tears it down. And we end up in the wasteland and the collapse of civilization um, with a sickly king and into the space of, you know, individual man and science and where magic ends up ossified within rock, quite literally. Um, and it's it's easier to track if you follow, like, um, uh, the character of Merlin is a bit polarizing. Like, uh, uh, he's he's very goofy, but uh, but he's also very cynical and, and melancholic. And a part of that is because he's passing, he knows that his age is dying, right? That this time of um, magic and nature and that, humans humanity's connection to that is waning and that uh he's kind of no longer required and passing away while man takes over and this kind of way that that's communicated through the seasons like we kind of start in spring we move into summer and we end in winter and that's like the film was shot out of order it from the winter into the summer um does a really good job of communicating that um but I also think the way that the film is really brutal and vicious communicates the kind of pain of that transition. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think there's something elemental about that story, which is effectively the story of, you know, our humanity's, you know, historical movement away from paganism and old gods into effectively, you know, in the West Christianity and order and science and institutions. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's just, that's, of course we're going to keep telling ourselves that story. So I think that's why we keep doing it. And I just think that of all of the iterations, Borman has kind of understood the myth-making from that that macro perspective the best. And I think the way he uses, you know, other famous nationalists like Wagner to kind of like hammer that home um, cause Wagner has also tackled this myth, but you know, for evil, but that's fine. Like well, it's not fine, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. There, so that, that's why I think we keep telling that story is just that there's in the West, that is the story of civilization. And I think that the way Borman tells it not necessarily as being a good thing. Like he almost like when you hear him talk about it, he's pretty objective about it. Like it's not romantic, this transition out of the muck and that like effervescent moss into, 
you know, a battlefield <laughs> full of dead bodies. Like it's not, it's not all fun and games. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's still beautiful. Like the crimson sun at the end is so gorgeous. So there's kind of beauty to be found, even though we're moving out of the forest and into something a little more plague stricken. But, but yeah, I hope we never stop making, you know, Arthurian legend films. Like I think, I think that there it's, it's ambiguous enough when you back up that I think there's still so much fertile ground to be covered. Um, So I, I'm every time I like, we're getting, um, the green knight that's an arthurian legend it's not the mm-hmm. arthurian legend but it's one of them mm-hmm. and i'm all for it man and whenever a new one comes out i have another excuse to watch excalibur so i don't that's care <laughs> did you see the guy Ritchie one from a couple of years ago yeah it's fine <laughs> <laughs> it exists <laughs> it had the most boring title it was king arthur legend of the sword <laughs> it's like okay he couldn't call it excalibur excalibur is t- <laughs> well i mean he could have but <laughs> but he couldn't call it king arthur because they they had that one that um antoine fuqua did one with uh clive owen oh uh, that's right another one that came and went um but yeah i mean they keep they keep trying to do it but i it's so funny because to me excalibur is the gold standard of this story like you could never you could never do a better job no, and I mean, it, a part of why you can't is because Borman makes decisions that allow the past, present, and future, right? The mythic mm-hmm. past, the gilded present, and, um, you know, the, the unknown future to coexist by, like, having all the actors play consistent characters, even though that, like, doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, yeah. uh, like Nigel Terry plays 18 to 60 (laughs) Uh, and when you first watch it it's you're like that's goofy as hell and then um when you gain a better appreciate or a stronger appreciation for what Berman was doing it starts to make a lot more sense I have another question for you, Meg. I wanted to talk to you about what your views are about the relationship between cinema and opera in this movie. You know, so it's too bad we don't have video right now because I literally have a book called Opera is Drama in front of me, <laughs> propping up my computer. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, like any medium, there's things that opera, like there's strengths that opera has that cinema doesn't and vice versa. Um, I, In terms of specifically like if if we want to be particular about it i think the way that um like uh borman went to the the wagner festival it had i can't remember the name of it before he made excalibur so that was all fresh in his mind and i think that allowed him to make certain um warranted connections between the myths that wagner was engaging with and the you know resonances with the parts of arthurian legend he wanted to weaponized Wagner for so like Mm -hmm. he doesn't like and you see this quite frequently in movies where they'll just deploy opera to deploy opera and to kind of borrow some of its scale but like you know the the prelude to Parsifal goes with you know Percival's story the the Tristan and his old thing which is all about you know a, a tryst that destabilizes a nation goes with uh Guinevere and Lancelot like it all makes sense 
So I think that just to keep things specific and to not have to make too many, you know, broad stroke claims here, I think the way that Borman uses Wagner here is very intelligent and adds to the story in a way that you don't always see with how people deploy Wagner in movies these days. The use of the Karl Orff music is kind of a cliche now in in advertising and in movies and, you know, when there's a comedy sketch. But in 1981, it was a brand new idea. Sure. And I mean, I mean, that that's a very iconic scene, right? Where, you know, the, the, the land has been revitalized with the revitalization of the king and they're they're going through these apple orchards that are there and practical and that Borman like waited to be in bloom throughout the shoot um but i honestly like every time i rewatch uh excalibur the musical moment that gives me chills is the de- uh the siegfried's death dirge that opens mm-hmm. up the film and closes the film mm-hmm. um like that is the the spine tingling tingling musical moment so even though Carmina Burana has become a bit of a cliche, it's still effective here. I still think that the way that the Siegfried Dirge is used is like the musical pinnacle of this film. It's so good. Like that title credit sequence with like the goofy 70s font that just like explodes into that beautiful title card. Like yeah. that's cinema baby. Like I, yeah. if I could hang that in a fucking museum, I would. It's so solid. And like every time I've shown this to friends, like I, like you get a wow. Like that's like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Like it's such a jaw dropping moment. And a lot of that has to do with not just the use of Wagner, but the effective use of Wagner in my opinion. Because you can misuse Wagner very easily. (laughs) Very easily. And you can tip into parody very easily. I mean, you know, Bugs Bunny used Wagner too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Monty Python used Wagner. Yeah. But I think it's done very intentionally and sincerely. Like, but this movie yeah. also crosses over a little bit between uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Excalibur. Sure. That would be a fun double bill. I don't laugh too much during Excalibur. There's funny moments. One of my favorites is when, like, like Merman, Merman, Merlin gets a lot of jokes, like, yeah. and, and he's meant to, like, Borman envisioned him as this kind of androgynous, you know, sly kind of creature that existed across boundaries and um, was a bit of a trickster just because he could kind of tell that his time was up and he was kind of just frustrated with all these humans being stupid. Yeah. And um, my favorite moment of that is when <laughs> Arthur has just learned that he's the son of Uther Pendragon, who we've just seen be like the worst man of all time. Like, like just do terrible, terrible things and bright eyed, you know, whatever dopey Arthur who like begins the film, you know, as a fool. And we see a mirror image of that later with Percival, like mm-hmm. Percival becomes the uh, a spitting image of what Arthur was later, where he's just kind of wild eyed and, Uh, excited about the world and its possibilities so anyway Arthur goes like hey Merlin like can you tell me about like how was my father as a person and Merlin's like oh yeah I mean uh, he was a great knight (laughs) (laughs) and I like that always gets me I think that's funny I think there are some laughs but I but I don't I uh, like I think that Borman was intending for comedic moments with Merlin but I I don't know that I think if people do laugh it might be just from you know, their discomfort with how the movie has aged or something. But I don't think it was ever intended to be a comedy outside of like some obvious jokes from Merlin. 
and some people who had a problem with this movie because um, at the time, like when people were, were saying it was a bad movie, they were talking about the ridiculous line readings, but it was like, no, I, I wouldn't call this movie having bad dialogue. No, it doesn't have bad dialogue. And you have to remember, like, uh, you know, from from the year of our, our Dark Lord 2021, we're like, that's Helen Mirren. That's Liam Neeson. These were all, like, unknown stage actors. So <laughs> they're coming from that background. Like, they're, uh, they're going a bit over the top, but it never feels unbelievable. There's a, there's a great article. Um, I can't remember the name of the author. It's in The Guardian, and it's about... Heath Ledger's Joker performance and it's about overacting and the author says something along the lines of the key to good overacting is belief and you mm-hmm. never you get the sense that all of these actors believe in what their characters are doing so even when you know baby Gabriel Byrne who's never been on screen before is shouting and screaming and you know being uh, uh, going completely bonkers it, it fits the world and I don't know I think it works and like I get why people might laugh out of discomfort but uh, I don't know. You know, even though it is Gabriel Byrne, he he isn't nearly as recognizable as some of the other uh, familiar faces in the movie. Like Gabriel Byrne really did. Uh, he really was a much more boyish looking guy at the beginning True, of his I do career think in his twenties. I do think the sleeper, the sleeper cell of this film, like the actor that you have to point out to people or they miss is Kieran Hins. Yes. Kieran, Kieran Hins is like a little spy. Like yeah. He looks so different. <laughs> yeah. He's, he doesn't look anything like uh, the series. Like Kieran Hins. He doesn't look now. like himself. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But Liam Neeson looks like Qui-Gon Jinn, like the 25 year old Qui-Gon Jinn. Yeah. And he was, uh, he was dating Helen Mirren at the time. They even had well, no, a place they, together. They, they fell in love on this movie. Yeah. Um, and then they moved in together and everything. Yeah, they sure did. That's the, um, the power of Excalibur. And Helen Mirren had done uh, Macbeth with um, uh, Nicole, I can't remember his last name, who plays Merlin, and they hated Nicole each Williamson. other. Nicole Hated yeah. each other. And Borman in his infinite wisdom was like, well, you, you hate each other in the movie, so... Uh, so uh, you're both in the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Helen Mirren was she'd been in Caligula and in the Long Good Friday, but this was her first sort of big. I mean, it wasn't her big. It wasn't her first big performance. She was, but she would become a much more famous actress after Excalibur. Uh, yeah, I mean the. It's so funny, like for all, and like Patrick Stewart's in this film, like, you know, everyone and their mom is in this movie. For all the the big names that are in this film, like the two performances that consistently knock me out of the park and that I have great appreciation for, and that um, it surprises me that they're not bigger actors, is uh, Paul Jeffrey as Percival. I love his Mm -hmm. performance. Me too. Like in the third act when he's, he's gaunt and bearded and desperate and the last kind of hope in the film uh, is really powerful. Um, I really enjoy his performance and I actually think he does the best at being the younger version of himself as well. And that trend, Mm -hmm. and I think it's because the starkness of his transformation from being a wide eyed page to, you know, someone who's been looking for something that might not exist for whatever it is, how many, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and then I also think Nigel Terry as King Arthur is really good. Like yeah, he, he sure has a is. tall, tall order. Like, yeah. 
he's got a huge job ahead of him and I think he does an amazing job and I, I wish more people knew his name and I wish he got more work. Yeah, he's really good. I, I, I accept the fact that he doesn't look like he's 18 at the beginning. That's fine. I mean, look, uh, we could, we all can suspend our disbelief. Just do it. <laughs> this movie also has a wonderful use of just jumping ahead 10 or 15 years. Like, Sure does. It's amazing. <laughs> Because when, um, like when the sword is plunged in the stone by U- Uther Pendragon, uh, they just cut to the springtime because they filmed that part in like the winter, and uh, it's all verdant and green. And then we see the young uh, Arthur and his family, and it's been fifteen years. I think the only if I if I were to in give- our minds, we just accept that as being time passing. Exactly. And I think I think the only instance of that sort of time jump failing in the film not like the film over trusting the audience is with Lancelot's transformation. Because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we're again, getting ahead of ourselves, but this film, you know, you, you have to talk about all of it while you're talking about parts of it. But mm-hmm. um, you know, when we first see him, he's very cherubic, clean, clean shaven. And then once um once his sin with Guinevere is, you know, uh, discovered and verified by Arthur and he pierces the land and, you know, abdicates and severs, literally severs his connection from the land by piercing it. Uh, it drives Lancelot crazy. And then when we catch up with Lancelot after the time jump, the film doesn't do, uh, uh, as good of a job as it needs to at letting you know that this like Bushman is Lancelot. (laughs) Like, like when you meet him, Percival doesn't go, Oh, Hey Lancelot. Like, it's just this like crazy man with wild hair. Who's like screaming and like marshalling these plague victims. And you're like, who the hell is that? And then it isn't till later when he, you know, rides in on the final battle and Arthur goes, Oh, Hey Lancelot that you're like, Oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's kind of the only time I think the film could have, uh, or the time jump was a little could have could have been handled a bit better. But other than that, uh, for the most part, the film trusts you and succeeds. Yeah, because Lancelot, when we first meet him, sort of seems like Ryan O'Neill. And oh, then, sure. Uh, then after the his little thing with Guinevere gets exposed and he goes mad, he looks like a guy who's being asked to leave a food court. Like he's got he, like, he the looks huge like hair. Um, he looks like Robin Williams and Jumanji. Like like <laughs> like he looks like a caveman. Like it's so funny. I mean, and sad, like, of course, when you, when you know that it's Lancelot and you rewatch it, it's, it's upsetting. Um, yeah. But, but the film kind of, uh, the musculature, there atrophies a little bit. The connection could be clearer. Yeah. But you know, it's a two hour and 20 minute movie that's compressing so much into a small space. Yeah. Yeah. Borman, Borman had to make one mistake. <laughs> Borman had to make one error. Well, it's fine that that's the one error. <laughs> one lord! One king! Orion Pictures presents John Borman's Excalibur. Knights of the Round Table, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. And I will marry! Don't you know me, Merlin? Because I'm a creature like you. Their magic is Merlin. Are you just a dream? To some. A nightmare to others! Their king is Arthur. You are my husband. I must be king first. Their power is Excalibur. 
I swear eternal faith to our king. So let's talk about the plot of this movie. I mean, it's sure. a big, long plot. I mean, I don't yeah. know how we want to get into it, but. Yeah. So the, I mean, we kind of touched on this earlier. This first third of the film is very dark and very brutal. And we're kind of thrown into this context of, and there's, we should mention like, this isn't set in any specific time period. Like it's set in the mythic past. So it is what it is. <laughs> but, but we're and the word, this- the word England is never mentioned in the entire movie. No, like we it could, could be, be in anywhere. France. <laughs> yeah, um, we're in Etobicoke. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so we're we're in this this situation where we've got these warring lords, and uh, Uther Pendragon is you know this especially brutal, grabby man who forges a tenuous alliance only to immediately risk it all to get the woman of his dreams. Uh, and uh, his alliance, Merlin, who maybe sees things from a, a bigger perspective than Uther, uh, says, okay, well, I'll help you get, I'll help, quote unquote, <laughs> I'll help you get the girl of your dreams, but I'm going to come back and ask for something in return. So Merlin uh, disguises Uther as Egraine's husband, who has just made this tenuous alliance with Uther. And while uh, the husband dies in battle, Uther is uh, raping Egraine. Uh, looking like her husband. And then, of course, the real husband's body gets brought in and Egraine is rightfully confused. Um, And then once she bears the child, Uther's like, you know what? I'm done with violence. I'm going to raise a family. (laughs) Which is also, that always gets a laugh out of me because I'm like, you fucking moron. And then then Merlin comes in and he's like, here to collect. And he like snags the baby and leaves and has a funny exchange with Morgana, who's Egraine's... uh, daughter uh, where they kind of look at each other and go see you later <laughs> and then Merlin walks into the woods and Uther's like wait a minute like I wanted to raise a family get back here with my baby and then of course Uther dies uh, choking on the mud but not before stabbing his mystical sword into a rock yeah I love that um, that visual of Uther covered in mud and his chainmail is sort of filling up with blood from the injuries in the battle. Yeah, it's stunning. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. and uh, yeah, and this mythical past it, like it, it's it's swampy and stuff, but it's still kind of um organic and miasmic in the way that everything is kind of uh mossy and iridescent but uh and mythical. So even when Arthur's a teen, which I, I still think is the first third of the film, every mm-hmm. like they they lit the moss. Like the moss is lit with a green gel. Like everything mm-hmm. just glimmers and is very hyper realistic and that's supposed to you know, underscore this connection that humanity has, this magical connection to, to nature. When I was little and I was trying to understand how movies are put together and how they're made and and what does color mean and what does symbolism mean, Excalibur was one of the first movies that really got my head turning in that direction with the way that the color of green is used throughout the film. Like it's such a subtle but effective uh visual treatment that he casts a green light on things. And, and uh, especially where it pertains to the actual mighty sword of Excalibur that you see this green cast on anything that's reflective and it's yeah, and just so a, smart. There's also smaller moments like in the second act where we're in this kind of gold and silver vision of Camelot. There, there are moments where Merlin kind of retreats down hallways that are bathed in green light because He's not meant to be in this gilded present. He's he's retreating into the past. Mm-hmm. And in the third act, 
the only person who really wears green and not just green, but that emerald green is Morgana because she holds the magic of the world. So uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of, uh, even as a kid, you can, this is a part of my, uh, my presidential platform of uh, kids for Excalibur is even if you're not really following the plot as a young person, you can still kind of track it all just by the, the color storytelling that Borman has going on. And I saw a, a photo from the production of of just this little green light stick that they put in front of the sword for all the parts where the sword is in the stone. Yeah, just, it's awesome. It's a direct uh, light light being aimed right at the metal. But yeah. you don't see the technique while you're watching the movie. You're just aware of this green cast that's been put over everything. Mm-hmm. And then Borman went on and made the Emerald Forest. Sure did. He was like, I'm going to double down. <laughs> Which also stars one of his kids, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and we should also mention that uh, Ukraine is played by one of his daughters. Okay, so here's the thing. She's I know got that a topless the, scene. Well, she does. And it's also a rape scene. But uh, uh, I, how to say this? Uh, the commentary track is very helpful here because Borman is clearly tired of people being like, what was it like to direct your daughter getting raped? Which, fair enough, that's an annoying question. And his answer is like, well, she wasn't being raped. It was a scene. <laughs> Let's pretend. Yes. And then he goes on to say that the hardest part of shooting the scene is that um, during the assault, there's a cross uh, cut between Ukraine's legitimate husband, who's, you know, had been Morally impaled. Wounded. And there's this huge sheet of fire behind him. And we keep cutting between that and a grain being assaulted again uh, with uh, this backdrop of just flames that are behind her bed because shut up. And Mm -hmm. he said the hardest part of shooting that scene was being around that fire. (laughs) So, yeah. um, Yeah. But yeah, no, his children are all over this film. Like one of one of the versions of Mordred is a kid and like voiced by another one of his kids. Lady in the Lake yes. is one of his kids. Like you can't throw a rock at Excalibur without hitting a Borman child. <laughs> so it's like a home movie for the Borman clan. I mean, and they shot it like in his backyard. Like this is a, this is the most expensive home movie ever made. <laughs> it's also a key movie for the for the development of the Irish film industry too. Absolutely. If you listen to the commentary, Borman is like, I basically invented the Irish film industry. He's like, I felt like I was just pulling these people along because they didn't know what they were doing, which I believe. Yeah. He created so much work for hundreds of people in Ireland in film. And he created work for some great actors who are household names now. It's uh, you know, and, and it was a very long shoot because they were filming in a very rainy time in Ireland yeah, apparently I mean, they it were filming like every day. I think it took something like eight months to make the movie because of all the time they were sitting around waiting for it to stop raining. Because it doesn't yeah. feel that rainy. There's no. only a few parts. It's a very verdant film most of the time. But uh, so I wanted to know what you what's your take on Merlin being a little bit complicit in this uh, in this sexual assault. <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, it's it's a part of the movie that's uh, a little these uh, days. Yeah, sure. But I mean, like it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. And I think, I think Merlin wanted that baby. Like, I think Merlin does have a a bigger vision of history and knew that that had to happen. And, uh, like it's it's not as if that's an if that's a plot point of Borman's invention that that, nope. that that all tracks. So it's like I don't think that Merlin is a is the you know um, 
Merlin is, as they appear in this film, isn't, isn't, uh, you know, the kindly old man that Disney presents us or anything like he's, no. uh, an elemental trickster God. And it, 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 like he was just doing what Uther told him to do. Like, he's almost like a gin or something where he's like, as you wish, but there's going to be a consequence like monkey's paw curl. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he's complicit, but I think like, I don't think he's a saint or an angel or anything like, no, he's beyond all that true and there's also a wacky uh, comedy moment later when arthur wants to be uh, with guinevere and he asks for merlin's help <laughs> yeah. and he's like oh no, 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 no. i'm not getting <laughs> Did this into before. that again <laughs> yeah. it's like that almost killed me nice try <laughs> just like a legit eye roll i love him it's like you humans and wanting me to help you rape women like nice try <laughs> nicole williamson is wonderful in this movie and and what is so great about so much of his performance is the ridiculous way that he stretches out language. I think he was drunk. I might be making that up and you might have to delete this, but I think I've read somewhere that he was like pretty sauced during most of this film. Um, and yeah, again, you're going to have to delete this if this isn't true, but I've, I've heard tell that it's a pretty sauced up performance, which I believe. Well, he was, he was a lesser known, uh, figure along with Richard Burton and Richard Harris and all the, the sort of the hell raising uh, Irish actors. Yeah. And I mean, I'd heard that the studio really didn't want Borman to cast him because everything he'd been in up to that point had failed. Oh, and yeah. Borman was like, well, unfortunately for you, I'm, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I think it's good casting. Like, I think that uh, Nicole really gets the, uh, androgyny and ambiguity of the performance. And I think Merlin definitely feels like he's on another level or plane of existence than the other characters. And you also get this interesting, like world weary God vibe from him where he's just like Mm -hmm. tired. (laughs) It's just so tired and done. (laughs) What are you afraid of? I don't know. Shall I tell you what's out there? Yes, please. The dragon. A beast of such power that if you were to see it whole and all complete in a single glance, it would burn you to cinders. Where is it? It is everywhere. It is everything. Its scales glisten in the bark of trees. Its roar is heard in the wind. And its forked tongue strikes like... Like... Wow, like lightning. Yes, that's it. And he loves fucking with people, too. Like he, He's the, a, the, yeah, I, he giggles I love the like part crazy. Where, uh, where he's he's once Arthur's true legacy has been revealed and he pulls the sword out of the stone and uh, then Merlin takes (laughs) off with him and uh, takes him out into the woods and he's uh, freaking uh, Arthur out with owls and snakes and lightning bolts. Merlin's having a great time just fucking with Arthur. Awesome. Yeah. There's, there's also a part, I think like after Arthur wakes up from that segment, um, they like go like some, I can't remember how it happens, but Arthur's like, uh, uh, he finds his um, uh, his adoptive brother, and he's like, "Hey, what's up?" And everyone's like, "Oh, we're loyal to you. Like, let's let's go uh, to that castle to to go stop that siege." And when they get there, they're like dealing with the siege, and Merlin like undoes the clasp on some horses who like pull yeah. some guys down, and he's just giggling like a maniac. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. Like, he's such a mischievous character. It's really fun. Well, another thing that I love about Excalibur is. That it's got all these phantasmagorical details, but it's also so rooted in the actual life 
in in the Middle Ages, like the 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 armor that must weigh fifty to sixty pounds, and the slowness of all the battles, and how non choreographed the fighting is. It's just meaty sort of guys just bashing each other, and arms getting lopped off, and slingshots with giant rocks being launched. Like it's really really primitive, and it's so effective. Even though the movie is in a fantasy world, it's grounded in yeah, this. So- early man kind of technology yeah like that that armors by terry english who like if you've been to a museum and seen replica armor you've probably seen terry english's work Mm -hmm. um and most of it was made out of aluminum and you it's it's so wonderful like the heaviness of how it all feels you really get this cumbersome sense of how shitty it was to fight in the past yeah. so as much as excalibur is very mythical in its approach to reality like it, it, it do, most of it does take place in the sense of unreality the way that it deals with violence is very grounded which i think does a good job of underlining the fact that the film is unpacking you know the the fake real mythology of a real nation's story about itself mm-hmm. um and and that the the you know narrative thrust of Excalibur plays out in real history, um, and just remembering not to romanticize that history because the rise and fall of kings you know isn't nice like it it yeah it's hard <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of blood. That's funny. I just presumed that they were actually using heavy duty metal for all the no um, a lot costumes. of it's aluminum, but it well, looks so clunky and heavy. Like it's I mean, just amazing how they still did- heavy. <laughs> Yeah, but it just it's just it doesn't feel smooth at all. It's one thing that I've never really I, I don't know how you feel about Game of Thrones. It's never really involved me very much. I don't, I hope I haven't I'm crossed in, the I'm line in, with I'm you. I'm different. No, I don't care. It's no Excalibur <laughs> think, baby. <laughs> but yeah, you would think that if you loved Excalibur, you'd love Game of Thrones, but like nah. it's just it's too visual effects heavy. It's just it doesn't really feel authentic. I know it's a fantasy and it can't feel authentic, quote unquote. Well, and this is part of why there's no heft and weight to it. Like the, the real, like, and we should say the horse work in this film is fantastic. Most of these horses Mm -hmm. are polo ponies. So they're especially adept at, you know, people holding swords and lances and stopping really quickly. Um, the actor who played grown up Mordred was like a very accomplished horseman. And like some of the stuff he does is really incredible, but because all of it's in camera and even some of the special effects, you still, those models existed in a place and time. And there's something very precious about that. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Um, mm-hmm. Just that, you know, even when something was a trick of the eye or whatever, the fact that it was real in 1980 or 79 or wherever they filmed it mm-hmm. makes this more special than imitators that have come since where they fix stuff in post. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you long for a time where where filmmakers had what they had when they <laughs> got back from the location and couldn't just make it all look good in post production and color. Yeah, correction. and I mean, there's there's people who still do that. Um, uh, it we just it, it's it's just not cheap. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. It used to be the cheap option, and now it isn't. Mm-hmm. But and I don't know how many extras they had in this movie. I got the, I get the sense that it wasn't a, quite a few weren't. hundreds at points. Yeah, not all the time in, in no, no, sort no. of key moments. Like the wedding is very lavish. Sure is. It's so cool, and like those trees that line that clearing that we return to later during the joust with 
uh, Liam Neeson's character and Lancelot, those trees aren't indigenous to Ireland, but they're special because they um, mimic almost a cathedral. So even though we're outside, you're getting this kind of premonition of the upcoming divorce of man from nature with these trees that imitate edifices. Let's talk about Lancelot. I want to know what's his deal when, when Arthur is finally King and we see him as a, you know, we've jumped ahead of a little bit to, we have, but also the thing is like the, the plot of Excalibur, even though it matters, it doesn't like, this is such a feely movie. Um, in my opinion, like, I don't know. This is a, a wave you ride. The The specifics don't really matter. But I want to know what Lancelot's deal is. He's got his own tent and flag, and he's got a staff who sort of set things up for him. And he's just waiting for people to joust him so that he yeah, can Yeah, well, he's, a- he's the best. And he's tired and bored because no one can beat him. And he's a simp in search of a master. And no one he has no, no one to simp for until uh, uh, Arthur rides along and bests him. And then he ends up in this conflict later in the film where that, that, you know, becomes literal in that nightmare he has where he's at war with himself because half of him is intensely loyal to Arthur and the other half of him is in love with Arthur's wife. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, that's his deal, I think is, and it, I mean, when that rift becomes irreconcilable, he loses his mind, which is what we get at the end of the film. Yeah, I just love the idea of Lancelot just setting up a tent and just being like, nobody gets across this bridge. I'm the best. I'm the best. I've never met my match. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, and that, I mean, uh, you know, whatever. We see variations of that in uh, Holy Grail, where it's just like these roving knights who are just like, I guess I'm just going to wait here. <laughs> <laughs> and then Lancelot is uh, when, when uh, Arthur f- knocks him the fuck out, but he breaks his sword. Yeah. And Lady of the Lake is like, well, Arthur feels bad about it because he let his uh, vanity get the best of him. And the yeah. Lady of Lake is like, okay, Arthur, here's Excalibur, as good as new. You can have it back. Yeah, Merlin freaks out. He's like, you moron, what have you done? <laughs> like, <laughs> you have broken what could not be broken. Yeah, meanwhile, Lancelot's like overjoyed because he's like, I get to simp now, finally. Yeah. <laughs> Lancelot's like, I'm your boy, Arthur. And then he's strangely plants a smooch on the tip of Arthur's sword. I don't know what that could possibly mean. Yeah. What could that mean? It's so ambiguous. (laughs) There's no way to know. (laughs) But, and then we cut to Arthur and his army in triumph. And this is like the real key that this movie has been dubbed in post-production is that, um, Nicole Williamson, uh, Merlin's staff suddenly lights up and it's very clearly an acetylene torch. Like it's, doesn't make any sound at all, (laughs) but we hear, uh, Merlin's, uh, you know, lines of telling the men to uh, rejoice this victory with great gladness. And uh, I was there that night with Arthur, the king. You can tell your kids. Yeah, tell your kids. And then, there. But then Arthur says, I will build a round table. I think that's yeah. the sort of line that people were complaining about the dialogue being stupid. But I love oh, it. Whatever. It's amazing. It's like Crank's turning where he's like, what if it were round? <laughs> it's great. Love to see it. So now we, and now all of a sudden the land is, is been, you know, blessed and yeah, Camelot's living, a great place. Living in a time of times. abundance. Or, uh, Kings, or, uh, Arthur's an armchair king where he just kind of asks people's opinion. 
Yeah, he's kind of a he. He likes to sort of shoot the breeze around the table with the boys. Yeah, exactly. And then he but sends. You can, you can tell that he's. I mean, once once uh, the sin happens, he he starts to be eaten away by this kind of you know invisible worm of betrayal. As yeah. soon as, and then things start to crumble, and the kind of excess becomes fetid and overdone. It's funny, actually. Like on the commentary, Borman talks about how he is actually repulsed by this these sets, by these golden gilded sets. He thinks that they're not. He doesn't like them, which I think is actually kind of the point. I think you're supposed to be a little bit repulsed by the, the stability of it all. Yeah, yeah. It's just a little too comfortable and cozy. It's all a little too much, isn't it? But we love it. <laughs> Well, yeah, we love it. Yeah, that's, that's part of the sword and sorcery enigma is there's just glitter everywhere. There's a little, um, maybe I'm reaching here, but there's a little Pulp Fiction in, in this part where Lancelot has to go escort uh, Guinevere to the king. It's kind of like Travolta having to take uh, Uma Thurman out to dinner. Right, just, but you if know, Travolta just putting these had, two together is uh, just asking for trouble. Yeah, sure. I mean, do it, <laughs> I say. <laughs> Got to move the plot forward. Got to got to destroy the kingdom with yeah. Got to got to take the mob the mob boss's wife out for yeah. for dinner. Where Arthur's like, "Hello, best friend, who's very hot and clearly has a crush on my wife. What if you were alone together? <laughs> I trust you." <laughs> and Lancelot's like, "I got to go live in the woods because I can't be near your 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 yeah. your hot wife." Yeah, your wife's a little too hot, my friend. <laughs> my notes it says he love her always. He love her as his queen. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no lies. <laughs> no lies detected. But yeah. he's like, you know, like Lancelot, why won't you, why won't you uh, hang out for dinner with us? Um, Cause I love your wife. I'm going to go live in the woods. <laughs> yeah. But then here's the thing. He has to be in the woods. Cause that's how he meets Percival, our best friend. That's true. Oh yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a sweet scene where Percival goes and gets him a pig. And yeah, you know, uh, it's sure um, it's it's a rabbit, and the only reason oh, I know rabbit? that is because there's a very funny uh, line at the end of the end credits that says, "No rabbits were hurt in the making of this movie." <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. Why why would a pig be in the woods? It was a rabbit for sure. Hey, wild boars are real. You never know. And but and Lancelot makes him run along with him for twenty days on the way back to Camelot. No, he doesn't like, make him do it. This is why Percival slaps. Percival's a moron when we meet him because like Lancelot's like, okay, we'll get on my get on my horse, like let's go. And Percival's like, no, 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 no I can run. <laughs> and Lancelot's like, you know, it's like really long, right? And Percival's like, no, it's fine. I love running. <laughs> <laughs> running is my favorite. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. So. So and then Percival gets a job at Medieval Times, right? Yeah, like, sure does. He gets to Squire. hand out the drumstick drumsticks. <laughs> <laughs> that scene's really good too. Um, you just love Percival right off the bat. He's one of my favorite characters in this. No, movie he's sure. and it's it's so it's such a good trick on Borman's part because you meet him and he's just like so stupid and like just energetic and full of life, and then you smash cut and he's just like a harrowed, wandering like. I don't like, yeah, he is, he gets the best of both worlds. I, I really enjoy his character quite a bit. So yeah, things seem to be going well at, uh, at King Arthur's court. And then Arthur asks Merlin if they have truly defeated evil. And Merlin's like, nope. <laughs> it's like, uh, all signs point to no, sorry. <laughs> Liam Neeson starts uh, bringing up some shit because he's figured out that the absolute the absence of Lancelot is proof that there's something going on between yeah, which Lancelot is thanks to Morgana poisoning Lisa poisoning his brain. Yeah, yeah. 
but uh, and then he like when they uh, pass Lancelot's cup to get uh, Qui Gon to take a drink out of it, he shoves it out of the way, and then Arthur's like, "Okay, dude, you got to fight Lancelot." Yeah, which is interesting because back in the day they had this really fascinating concept that maybe we should bring back, which is that if you could win a fight, that meant that there was some truth to your claim. Mm-hmm. And I just like the idea of senators and politicians having to fight. It's like that old joke in All Quiet on the Western Front where it's like leaders should just strip down to their underwear and wrestle. <laughs> like, <laughs> that like the truth will somehow come out of this. <laughs> this joust is very funny because it mirrors uh, how... Like it ties another connection between Percival and Arthur and that they both kind of mm-hmm. get like emergency knighted. Like yes. when when Arthur gets knighted, uh, he tries to get an enemy to swear loyalty to him. And then he realizes he's not a knight. So he's like, okay, wait a minute. I need you to knight me <laughs> before I can make you swear loyalty to me. And then- um, That's uh, a wonderful Lance- scene. It's so good. And they, that's one of the few uh, real castles that they used. And a part of why they wanted it was for the moat. Yeah. Um, that was apparently quite cold. Um, uh, but anyway, Lancelot shows up. Uh, also, uh, another footnote, during all of the butt-naked love scenes between uh, Lancelot and Guinevere, apparently there were lots of mosquitoes, which oh, yeah. is uh, very fun to think about because um, they're being very stoic and romantic. And you can, I think someone should do an edit of it where you can just hear the buzzing of mosquitoes in the background. <laughs> um, but anyway, Lancelot's late to his own joust tournament fight, whatever. So Percival's like, I'll do it. He had that freak out, right? Because, oh, he did. Um, he had his, his he had a fight uh, with himself in the nude. Right. And then stabs himself during his dream as you do. Um, so he's wounded and like trying to make it back, I guess. But meanwhile, Percival's like, well, I'll do it. Um, but I need someone to knight me first. <laughs> and then Arthur's like, well, I'll do it. I know how this goes. <laughs> and so, but luckily Lancelot shows up in the nick of time and defeats Liam Neeson. Uh, and therefore did not have sex with Arthur's life. <laughs> yeah, everyone's all relieved. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and also Lancelot can't cover up the fact that he's badly injured, like yeah. He was already injured when he showed up for the to get this thing over with, but then there's blood all over his armor by the end, and he almost takes out Neeson too. Like even though Neeson said the queen was innocent, it looked yeah. like uh, Lancelot was still gonna to get him. And well, this so- is another thing that's fascinating with them, um, like. As much as the music is very bombastic and present in this film, every time there's a major fight, it completely falls to the back. And like you yes. just hear clangs and swings and grunts, and it, it definitely reinforces the brutality of how this film treats violence and the mm-hmm. lack of romanticism around how this film treats violence, which I think is quite nice. Um, yeah, and and uh, it... I guess that's one of the reasons why the movie tricked me into thinking that they were actually walking around in heavy armor is yeah, the sound, sound design. design is so great. Because <laughs> you just hear tons of metal clanking, like little pieces of metal from all the, you know, the connections. It's probably another the reason they had to ADR everything is the, the suits were probably quite noisy. <laughs> the only Oscar this movie got a nomination for, and deservedly so, was for the cinematography by Alex Thompson. Yeah, who's a god, and we love yeah. Stan. Because yeah. the original cinematographer uh, was doing a night shoot and underexposed the film twice in a row and quit, like, three days into the shooting. Oh, man. Um, yeah, which, I get it, we all get frustrated. But also, we're glad Thompson came on, because, you know. Yeah. No, he's a king. He's one of the rare um, cinematographers who was his own camera operator, too. Uh, yeah, and it shows. Like, Legend in the Keep, specifically, you get a real sense of composition and movement from him. 
Yeah, and you know, he shot Year of the Dragon, my my problematic fave, and uh, it's an amazing movie because it's in Cinemascope, but he also used um, w- wide-angle lenses. So this was uh, Berman wanted to do Excalibur in Cinemascope, but it it made the optical effects too difficult. Um, oh, yeah, and not just the opticals, but the refraction effects. Yeah, work. all the it, lights, the 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 trickery within the lens was probably very difficult. With yeah, a, so with they couldn't lens. couldn't do Cinemascope for that reason. Uh, and it was too great expensive. Great looking movie, anyway. It doesn't need cinemascope. That's a cliche in a, in a way that you got to have your epic uh, sword yeah, and sorcery true. movie in the super wide format. So yeah, so Merlin saves Lancelot's dying ass with that yes, special sure uh, that special cheat code that Merlin has that gives you full health. Up, up, down, down. <laughs> <laughs> but then he ominously says that when a man lies, he murders some part of the world. Yeah. You know, dropping I mean, hints left and right yeah. that Lancelot, uh, <laughs> Arthur, you're a cock. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, he totally cucked uh, Arthur. But that's, I guess, maybe is that Borman trying to put some sort of psychoanalysis into the movie, like some um, concepts of like the idea of like Arthur's best friend cheating on his wife, and the, I think like, it's more that it's infidelity the, it's, is the is the key to the destruction of the of the land. A little bit, like, I think it's more that, I mean, the way that I've always understood it, this might not be Berman's interpretation, but it's almost like, like, I I think you get the sense from the beginning of the second act that, like, none of this can last, like, it's unsustainable, and in moments of peace such as this and excess such as this, humanity does have a tendency time and time again to kind of rip itself to shreds. So I think the kind of ultimate expression of that self-destruction is your best friend fucking your wife. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. think like from the fall of Rome to whatever, like I think it, it, you know, from a mythic perspective, the the call coming from inside the house being your friend fucking your wife makes a lot of sense. You, you feel for the guy, right? I mean, like that tableau. I feel for all of, of them. The, I think they're, they're all in a bad uh, way. Of the couple in the woods with, and Arthur showing up to sort of, you know, bust them. Yeah. It almost feels like um, it's very tragic. And it, and it feels, I think one reason why it feels so tragic is because of the distance with which Borman observes this, this moment. Like yeah. they're little dots on the landscape. Yeah. He does love the landscape. This is another good reason to listen to the commentaries. Most of it is just Borman talking about foliage and nature. And him being like, I had to make sure camera operators didn't trample things. So so Arthur jams the sword back into the stone. Proverbially, yes. Puts it in between Lancelot and Guinevere. And uh, that's really where Arthur's health really st- takes a tumble and where the land starts to fall apart and where yeah, Morgana and, and, makes her power move and starts running things. Yeah. Like the, the scene of Arthur, you know, s- severing his tie to the land and uh, like plunging Excalibur into the earth happens collaterally to a scene between Morgana and uh, in Merlin where they're duking it out. And then when like verbally and when, uh, Arthur stabs the land. Uh, we see Excalibur stab Merlin, and mm-hmm. then uh, Morgana takes her chance and uh, breathes this fog all over him that becomes stone, and he becomes, you know, 
encased in his own type of carbonite. Yeah, it is. It is like carbonite, and uh, it's for an epoch, I guess, too. Like, it's- yeah. Well, the the myth is that he's still there. Like that somewhere there's a rock with Merlin in it. Mm. And it also is kind of a nice parallel to Excalibur, which was also encased in stone. Mm-hmm. And then Morgana pulls the dragon's breath move and tricks Arthur into having sex with him, with uh, her. Yeah, sure does. This is a <laughs> an, another uh, questionable scene, but uh, myths do be like that sometimes. That's true. They're they're brother and sister or half brother and sister. Uh, half brother and sister. Yeah, but she winds up giving birth to their son, the future king. Yeah, another great uh, tr- trick shot. Yeah, a great trick shot of real pregnant woman with uh, uh, Helen Mirren's concealed body. It's very convincing and nice. But it really does feel like the world's coming to an end when that baby. It does. Is born. Well, uh, well, and and it is. Yeah. We smash cut and the world did end. There's plague, it's winter, and everything is a swamp. <laughs> There's no color in the world. It's completely desaturated. And and the, even the church seems malevolent. Like It seems like a black mass going on. Like yeah. Arthur gets struck by lightning. He does. And then just like pieces out from the film for a while. Well, he tells the knights to go find the Holy Grail to fix this shit. Yes, and the knights are like, hope it exists. <laughs> I love the part where all the knights are riding off and then we follow the one, our boy Percival. Our boy. With, on what turns out to be a 10-year journey in this. 10-year like, journey. The, the land gets more and more blighted. Yeah, and we get a great moment that's, you know, uh, borrowed directly from Bergman where Percival comes across, you know, a praying knight who's dead. Like, it's mm-hmm. a very... Act three is is uh, co-directed by Ingmar Bergman, which is great. <laughs> and and images you'll never forget like that. There's a moment where he's coming across this forsaken forest and you see this horse riding out with like murdered knights strapped to them. Yeah, there's lots of crows, lots of dangling bodies. Uh, Boy King Mordred is, is the only kind of remnant of the glittering past. He has an entire gold suit of armor and... Uh, he's terrorizing the land. It's plague stricken. Um, and Percival's having these fever dreams, trying to find the grail. And the the ultimate key to him acquiring it is more spiritual than an, an actual physical accomplishment. Like he only mm-hmm. actually, after being tempted by Morgana, Morgana attempts to tempt him away from the grail at one point and uh, unsuccessfully. And it's only after, uh, I think... Um, Percival has an encounter with one of his old friends who gets killed by Mordred and then he kind of like falls in a river and then he takes off his armor and in so doing, like relieving himself of this past is able to make himself kind of innocent and available enough to see the truth of the grail, which is that the land and the king are one, which is very nationalistic when you think about it, but, uh, that's, that's what, that's the game we're playing. Yeah. Well, there's that spooky scene where Percival is hung by the tree. and uh, Yes, very good and, scene. And he's having this near-death experience, and I guess that's what we all get when we're at death's door, is that we get yeah. asked a question about from the from the spirits of, you know, answering the question to the, that holy grail, like, who's, yeah. whose grail is this? Nigel Terry comes up and he says... What's my name? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, saved by his spurs. That's a great scene. I also thought that was depressing, the idea that some of the knights that had been rounded up by Morgana are now staff. 
working for Yeah, they are staff. Her. They got hired. Like, they got hired. It's like, what else are you going to do? Die in a tree? Like, yeah. uh, I could hang you in your armor off a tree, or you could work for me and serve drinks. Yeah. And it's just this corruption of all these knights who decided to just, you know, sell their souls and work for the devil. Which is part of why I think for all its excess in glitter, it has such a function here because of the corruption of the third act. So as much as like we can kind of laugh and um, revel in the excesses of sword and sorcery films, I think Borman's intentionality with the deployment of its excesses is so well done that it's just another feather in Excalibur's cap and why I think it's a cut above all of its peers. Also, didn't you want to smack the shit out of Mordred? Little Mordred? Yeah, sure did. I mean, yes. I wrote in my notes that he reminded me of Clifford if he had been played by a human <laughs> boy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, there's a word in German that I can't remember, which is punchable face, and that's yeah. that's that's it. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's good casting. Played by Charlie Borman, but then voiced by another voiced Borman. by another <laughs> Borman kid. Yeah. But then then we have another jump forward in time where we see uh, Mordred now looking like. Uh, one of he looks like Chuck Bass from Gossip Girl a little bit. Oh my God, he does! <laughs> Great pull. <laughs> He's like this really. He he looks like a sort of an '80s Brit pop kind of guy, but he's still wearing the gold suit. And again, you can tell that it's him because you want to punch his face too. Yeah, it's true. They put out a casting call. They said, "Hey, do you have a punchable face? Come on in." <laughs> so Mordred, grown up Mordred, shows up to claim the kingdom, and Arthur's like, "Nope." So Mordred's like, okay, well, I'm going to take it by force. Arthur's like, you do that. Right, because Arthur's been revitalized by by the Grail, thanks to Percival, our boy. Yeah. Well, yeah, Percival gets finally gets the right answers, and then he gets that Grail over to Arthur. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of my questions was, how did he transport it all the way back to Camelot without spilling uh, it? Well, I think it's it's spiritual. It, 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 I mean, if you watch the Grail, it doesn't fill up until it's in front of Arthur. Okay. So, which is a great, you know, uh, subtle visual effect of them intubating wine into the grill in that one shot. But, uh, but I, I, again, this is part of why I don't think the plot of Excalibur matters that much no. is because it's, it's more the spiritual movement of the third act that you need to follow along more than the logistics of how he got the grail there. Yeah. No, I'm just being annoying asking, uh, how did that happen? Questions. No, that's okay. I'm the straight man. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Grail's like a Red Bull. Like Arthur bounces yeah, exactly. right back, tells the knight, "Fire energy ready. drink." <laughs> Arthur got his monster energy drink, and now he's yeah. back. Maybe <laughs> the flowers come back, the grass comes back, the yeah, Carl Orff comes back. Yes, but unfortunately, a lot of his army is dead or enslaved. So the trick becomes: how do they fool Mordred into thinking there's more of them? And Merlin from Beyond the Pale steps up to the plate and tricks mm-hmm. Morgana into summoning a bunch of fog and also de-aging yeah. herself yeah. or not de Yeah. Well, well revealing whatever. what she really looks like. Sure. Guess, right? Um, and then what she would look like at this age. That's correct. Uh, and Mordred murders his mom in response to that. Yeah. He gets really um, freaked out. He's like, I don't like it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that means we get a nice foggy finale. With Arthur looking like Barry Gibb and, yep. and that classic moment where Merlin says, you know, he says, are you a dream, Merlin? And he says, a dream to some. A nightmare I'm, to others! I say this to my dog sometimes. I go, you're a dream to some, a nightmare to others. 
and and that's that incredibly beautiful tableau. It almost looks like something out of um, um, feudal Japan or something, the, or, or out of a Kurosawa film, the battle yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. The way that that blood red sun slash moon is in the background and like all the carnage everywhere. It's so artificial, but it's so incredible and 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 eye eye catching. Yes, and I, the, as much as we we ragged earlier about how Lancelot is looks insane and unrecognizable the when he shows up and is just like a madman wearing his old armor Mm -hmm. you get some incredible shots and like i know people complain about the shouting but like think about it back in the day it's loud armor's clanging armor's uh swords are clanging you got to communicate so like you you try talking over a giant knight battle exactly so yeah no excellent scene excellent stabbings lots of blood lots of carnage no music yeah it's 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 such a brutal finale. It's so amazing, and no fight choreography. It's just a, a battle royale. It's just oh, and, an ugly, ugly fight between and Jesse between armies. My, my favorite comment on the entire director's commentary is Borman saying, uh, uh, talking about how it's hard to do fights like this with Irish people because they don't stop fighting. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> he was like uh, "Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say cut. They keep going." <laughs> Incredible. Which is so good. We should also discuss the beautiful poetic conclusion, which it's, is kind of like the end of Lord of the Rings. With it Arthur, sure is, it, yeah, with the, and, and with the dying Arthur uh, or the dead Arthur uh, off to sea. It's impossible to tear the Lord of the Rings nest out of Excalibur, and uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think that the parts of Lord of the Rings that Borman borrowed are probably living in the same mythic space that Lord of the Rings exists in anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the circle is Arthurian legend to Lord of the Rings. And then <laughs> like, it's just a Venn diagram. That's a circle. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, I don't think it's plagiarism at all. <laughs> so, no. um, but yeah, no, it's a very effective ending, I think. And I think the kind of sadness that Percival gets left behind to pick up the pieces is also quite effective. And then we get that font again. That incredible. Then we get that dope that ass font. Dope ass seventies font. Yeah, just to remind you, bring it back to reality. <laughs> yeah, no Excalibur. I mean, I I can't say enough of how good this movie is. No, it's I can talk about on, it forever. Is it based on La Mort d'Arthur? Yeah, it is. That's the um, primary source, right? Yeah, and it, from my understanding, like uh, who wrote that? I can't remember. Thomas oh, something, Thomas, Thomas Mallory. Somebody. Yeah, Thomas um, Mallory. Uh, it was in there. <laughs> it was in my brain. Um, like back in the day, like the printing press made Bibles, like nothing else really was a book. And mm-hmm. uh, Mallory was in jail, in prison for, I think, rape. <laughs> and, uh, and someone was like, can you please write a book, and but not the Bible? And so he collated a bunch of oral legends about the Arthurian story. And that's how we got that book. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I think Excalibur is a masterpiece. I would argue that it's Borman's best movie. Oh, yeah, that's in the, yeah. Yes, there's no question about it. Best movie, best Borman movie. <laughs> best, best movie. The argument that yeah. you're willing to make is that it's the best movie ever made. I mean, I, I think that's true. I think when people say that cinema, they're just talking about Excalibur. And it's hard to believe also that it's 40 years old. Yeah. It feels so new in so many ways. Yeah, and I, I think it will continue to feel new. I think one of the benefits of playing in a mythical space, especially 
a myth goals face that keeps getting repeated time and time again is that I don't really think it's going to go out of style. Like I understand that there's parts of this film that are inextricably, you know, tied to the past, but not anything that I don't think audiences can either learn to love or, or, or get down with. So I would just implore anyone who hasn't, who's gotten this far, who hasn't seen the film yet to, to watch it. It's, it's fantastic. And, uh, will open itself up to you time and time again. Borman is on record saying he doesn't really watch his own movies after he's made them, but that he routinely watches Excalibur because because of its mythic heartbeat, it almost feels like he didn't make it, like that it's part of something else. So uh, I think we started this by me saying that my mom is responsible for me watching this, and I should say I have two sisters who do not like this movie. So, <laughs> so uh, your mileage will vary depending on how down and jelly you are with sword and sorcery films and a certain level of eighties bombast, but, uh, you know, give it a shot. I think this is, I do, I'm not being hyperbolic. I do think this is one of the best films ever made. So, uh, why not? You know, there, you could, you could do worse, <laughs> but you can't do better because it's the best movie. <laughs> sad to hear about the passing of Richard Donner that upsets me uh me director too. director of Lady Hawk another great sword and sorcery film that would pair very well with Excalibur um and I'm a I'm a huge fan of Superman I think if you made Superman you don't need to make anything else like that is no, one really of my don't. favorite movies yeah I think yeah. I realized that one of the reasons why I complain about Marvel movies so much is because nothing compares to Richard Donner's Superman no no like why try <laughs> Because <laughs> I do a lot of uh, uh, Marvel bashing. <laughs> well, I do a lot of uh, come on, come at me, bro. Tweets about oh. Marvel because uh, Stephen Dorff got in trouble. Oh, I did see he was trending. Yeah, Stephen Dorff said that uh, he feels embarrassed for Scarlett Johansson being in Black Widow. That he would never do a movie like that, and they're they're all garbage. <laughs> Uh, bold of someone who was in Blade to say that, but that's I fine. <laughs> when you're in the best Marvel movie of all time, you everything looks like shit. Oh well, that's that's uh, not accurate because Blade Two exists. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you in the Blade Two camp? I should watch that I again. Am. Blade Two better than Blade One. I saw Blade One and Two in the theater. I didn't bother with the third one. Mm, humble but, brag. Um, I didn't. I didn't really. Maybe I should watch Blade Two again because I didn't really dig it. But I loved Blade. I, I think Blade a, Two I was in the tank benefits. For Blade. Blade 2 benefits from the thing of like the world building is done. So it just gets to be like weird um, in its own thing, Mm -hmm. which I like. Like that's kind of the nice thing about second go rounds with that level of world building is you can kind of just hit the ground running. Yeah. Speaking of Exorcist 2, right? Like you don't need to establish anything. You can just take the idea or, you know what? A really good example of that was the second X-Men movie where they did not even start talking about anything. They just went right into the the story because the whole movie did all that work for you. The whole first movie did all that work. The second Hellboy is also a good instance of that where it's like, we've laid laid the groundwork. Let's, let's go boys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so everyone was mad at Stephen Dorff for slagging Black Widow. And a lot of the criticism was, well, you know, at least she's making more money than you are. And, oh, well, you do a vape commercial. So, you know, who are you 
to judge. And somebody made me laugh. They said, well, a vape commercial, a, va- a commercial on vaping is actually more honest about what it is than a Marvel movie. <laughs> That's true. Also, uh, if you like making vape jokes, there's a really good opportunity for that in Excalibur. Cause when Helen Mirren is spewing out the fog from her mouth, uh, yeah. you could, you can just look to your partner or your dog and go, we get it. You vape. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> I do it every time and I laugh. <laughs> That's a funny scene because she's just babbling away and you can see that there's obviously a hose right next to her mouth that's just Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. No, it's all good. Yeah. Meg, it's been so great to talk to you again. I'm so glad that after we said folks 400 times in an hour and a half (laughs) that you ever wanted to speak to me again. Folks, this middle name is Excalibur, so I knew. (laughs) Oh, you're right. I knew that it was going to (laughs) happen. Meg, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at the worst nun. If if there's someone on your feed tweeting about Excalibur a lot, it also might be me. If you see an Excalibur shot on One Perfect Shot, it might be me. <laughs> I'm like, uh, can we get a split diopter on here? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sneak it on. <laughs> there's some good split diopters in, di- in Excalibur. Oh, yeah. No, there's some good yeah. everything. Yeah, Um, something for everybody. So we strongly advise the listener, catch up to this movie if you haven't already seen it. And if you have seen it, it's probably been a while and you should watch it again because it rocks. Yeah, great replay value, telling you. And I know that when Zack Snyder put Justice League on HBO Max, he had a list of his, well, he had a list of his favorite movies that they made a playlist and Excalibur was the first one on the list, I believe. (laughs) Look, I don't love that that man is adapting the Fountainhead, but I do like his taste in movies. I would. I'm. I'm a big fan of the original camp classic of the Fountainhead. I. I would like to see what Zach does with it. Look, uh, he's making movies. Uh, he's making his own movies, and he's got his own taste, and that's fine. And I'm happy he exists, and I'm happy someone else besides myself is spreading the gospel of Excalibur. Can't complain. That's true. If they if they won't take it from you, they'll take it from Zach. I'll take Snyder. it from Zach. I'm, we're we're uh, you know how people get Snyder pilled. Him and I are Excalibur pilling everybody. <laughs> well, I'll remember this the next time a Snyder cut person gets really mad at me. I'll say, "Hey, we're on the same team. We both. You know, you remember how Batman and Superman realized that." Uh, their mother's <laughs> both named Martha. I'll say I have Excalibur. I love Excalibur too. And then he'll be like, "Why did you say that name?" Oh my god! <laughs> Five comedy points. Very funny. <laughs> well, Meg, you're you're welcome to come back on anytime. Please yeah. come back on the show. Someday. Always happy to be here. Always happy to be here. We're just going to get progressively loopier. Now that we've done folks and Excalibur, we have to just keep yeah. upping the ante. We'll just insanity. keep upping the ante. I'll just keep finding more insane movies for us to discuss. Perfect. Perfect. Meg Shields, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. That concludes this episode, but we'll have another junk filter in the next few days. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe to it. Please tell your friends. Please rate us. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, we do have a Patreon. And patrons get access to bonus episodes. Consider signing up for it at patreon.com slash junkfilter. Please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening.